happy election day for politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and welcome back to our final State of the Vote episode for the 2022 cycle. We are bright and early in your podcast feed, and if you haven't voted already, you can quickly check how and exactly where to do that today by visiting IWillVote.com. Again, IWillVote.com to find exactly where to vote today. So in the run-up to the midterm election, we've been breaking down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and the Senate, and that is going to set the foundation for power dynamics and politics leading up to the presidential election. So we have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the mathletes behind the major outlets like The Economist and BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. If you want to follow along tonight, Decision Desk is going to be updating results in real time at results.decisiondeskhq.com. I'm joined today by Kyle Williams from the DDHQ team, who is already in the election night bunker. So if you hear some background noise while we're talking, please forgive us. It is that time of the year. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress in the Electoral College in 2020. And he holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, welcome back. Thanks for making the time. Happy Election Day. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. So uh, today's Election Day. And uh, I think we ought to just do a table set, right? Um, We've tracked every single week the movement in the predictions, what's driving that movement. And uh, and there's a whole bunch of people who've already voted uh, today. How does the environment, how does the national landscape look going into uh, today? Uh, So right now, our national generic ballot is around uh, Republicans leading by around two. Um, So Republicans, you know, if you ask somebody uh, how likely are you more likely to vote for a Republican or a Democrat when you walk into the voting booth, Republicans win that by around two points, which historically that's pretty good for Republicans if they're leading that ballot at all. Uh, How does that translate into what's going to happen in the House of Representatives? Well, right now we give Republicans around a 78, 79 percent chance of winning control of the House of Representatives. We think they are most likely to end up with something like 230, 231 seats, roughly speaking, in, in the House. And that really hasn't changed a whole lot over the past few months that they sort of bounced around between the mid to, to high 70s. Uh, and so really, you know, we've it sort of looked like Republicans were in a good spot for a while to win control of the House. And that hasn't really changed a whole lot. But if we shift gears and look at the Senate, we've seen a lot of movement since really just the middle of October toward Republicans. If we think back toward the summer, uh, Democrats looked like they were actually in a good spot to hold control of the Senate. You know, there was a point in time in September we gave Democrats, you know, 64, 65 percent chance of keeping the Senate, you know, with their with their 50, 50 bare minimum majority. Uh, But now we give Republicans, Republicans look like they're actually narrowly favored to win 51 seats and win back control of, of the chamber. So this is all to say at a high level, Republicans look like they're in a good spot, uh, definitely to win control back of the House that I think we would all be quite surprised on the DDHQ team if Democrats actually somehow retain control of the House. And then on the Senate side, there's a lot of uncertainty. The Senate really is on a razor's, uh, you know, razor's edge, uh, but uh, could go could go either way. But Republicans look like they have at least sort of a, a mild advantage heading into election night. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about polls uh, and then I want to get into, you know, what's a good night look like for Republicans? What's a bad night look like for Republicans? Uh, And then I want you to sort of give us a sense of how the evening and then the preceding days are going to unfold. And when we when you think we can expect results in some of these most important races. But first, there has been a common refrain that I've seen 
uh, on the internet. Uh, and also some, some listeners have written in, uh, sort of discouraged by the way we've been talking about these polls and these predictions. Um, and one of the most interesting things I've seen from, from, from serious people, uh, serious people on the internet, uh, who, who, who know professional politics has been, uh, you can't trust these averages anymore. Democrats are going to have a better night than you think because, uh, because Republican pollsters are flooding the zone with um, artificially positive uh, polls, and those are getting worked into the averages, and so they're artificially boosting up the averages like the DDHQ uh, model relies on. Um, first of all, as a practitioner, this is unhinged to me. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense, and I'm sort of disappointed that there are serious people uh, arguing this. Um, but how? what's the best way to explain to people uh, why that isn't the case, and um, and 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 what would you say to skepticism about um, polling that is predicting Republicans winning uh, this year? So I think the first way I would answer that question is to look at it from a historical level. So right now, Joe Biden, who's a Democrat, is the president, and his approval ratings are not particularly good and have not been particularly good for for a while. And really, there is nothing more, you know, there are a few things that have been more consistent in American electoral politics over the past 50, 60 years than having an unpopular incumbent president's party do badly in a midterm election. That right now, we have Democrats slated to lose control of, of you know, very likely to lose control of the House uh, in this election. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden is the president, he's a Democrat, and he's unpopular. Well, if you go back to 2018, Donald Trump, a Republican, was the unpopular incumbent president. That election was largely a referendum on him, and Republicans did really badly. If you go back to 2014, Barack Obama was a Democratic incumbent president. He wasn't very popular. Democrats did badly. 2010, same exact story. If you go back to 2006, George W. Bush was the incumbent, unpopular president. Republicans did quite badly. If you go back to 1994, Bill Clinton was the quite unpopular incumbent Democratic president, Democrats did quite badly. So I think it's sort of strange to look at uh, right now, um, you know, us saying that uh, Republicans are likely to win control of the House and sort of view that uh, with a super high degree of skepticism. In fact, I think the thing that would be really strange historically would be if we thought Democrats were likely to do very well. That is what would cut against the historical grain of what we've observed for sort of literally decades now. Um, so I think that's the first lens through which I think about this is just on a historical level. If you compare what's likely to happen to what's happened historically. Another level I would look at it is in terms of, well, um, if you sort of think that Republicans are releasing all these very Republican leaning polls, you know, if Democrats had a lot of really strong Democratic leaning uh, poll poll results uh, to release, they probably would would do would do that. Uh, so I think, you know, that that itself is sort of a, another piece of it that doesn't doesn't quite make sense if you're sort of are looking through things through this through this prism. Um, the third is um, we always like to say, you know, there's no one poll you should ever trust either, that there are Democrat, there are pollsters that tend to release results that are uh, sort of more Democratic favoring. There are pollsters that tend to release results that are more Republican favoring. And this is one of the reasons why at DDHQ, you know, we say there's probably no one single poll you should ever trust. You should think about uh, poll averages in the aggregate combined overall. So you can think about historically, you know, what is likely to happen. You can think about, uh, you know, what would Democratic firms do if they had polling that was favorable to them? And then also from the perspective of, you know, you shouldn't trust individual polls anyway. You should always think about it in terms of averages. There's one other thing I'd love you to talk about, which is the distance between the population that's being polled and the population that's actually voting. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I think something, you know, we observed in 2016 and 2020, especially in states, you know, like Iowa, states like Wisconsin, states like Michigan, uh, that there were these poll averages heading into election night during those elections that appeared like, you know, quite strong for Democrats. We got to election night and that wasn't what happened. That, you know, Donald Trump in 2016 won Michigan and Wisconsin. Joe Biden in 2020 won Michigan and Wisconsin, but by razor thin margins compared to what polling suggested. And I think something that's useful to think about is you can imagine in America, there are two populations of people. There is the population of Americans who vote and there is the population of Americans who answer and respond to polls. Now, those two populations of people have a lot of overlap, but they are not the same group of people. And if we think back to previous eras in American history, so imagine when George W. Bush was president, imagine when Barack Obama was president, those two groups of people were oftentimes relatively similar. And that's one of the reasons why back then polling, uh, you know, tended to, you know, at least appear hourly to sometimes have more consistency than it does today. But in this period, you know, sort of post Donald Trump, we've seen a lot of educational polarization. Those two groups now have become significantly different. That if you think about sort of the group of Americans who are likely to answer polls, what we've seen is that that group of people oftentimes can be significantly more democratic than the population of Americans who vote. And this is something that, uh, you know, I think pollsters, uh, you know, have continued to invest a lot of time and energy in trying to overcome, but it's a challenging problem because if you were a pollster trying to conduct a poll, the population of people you can ask is the population of people who will answer a poll. You cannot invent a different population of people to, to poll against, as it were, or at least if you, it's very challenging. That is super helpful. I hope that's helpful for a lot of our listeners who have been thinking the same thing. And actually, I, I'd love to dig in with you separately sometime about the causes of that educational divide and when it comes to survey response bias. But let's set that aside. Um, what does a good night for Democrats look like? What does a bad night for Democrats look like? And uh, help us paint the what are the what are the range of possible outcomes uh, that you're looking at? So. Oftentimes, you know, something that's helpful to me definitely when I'm thinking about evaluating an election night is, you know, what are specific races I'm looking at at different points in the night? So one of the first uh, states we're going to have results for at, I think, 7 p.m. Eastern uh, is uh, for Indiana. Now, Indiana is a state that sometimes is not super duper interesting because uh, from an electoral level, because it's very Republican today for the most part. But one early election you can look at is Indiana's first congressional district. So this is a district uh, in um, the northwestern part of Indiana around Gary that sort of borders Chicago. Um, This is a district that Democrats have held for, I believe, decades, you know, versions of this district for, I believe, decades. And it hasn't really been competitive. But over time, you know, especially over the past, uh, you know, 10 years, has gradually become more uh, more competitive. And if we see a really large red wave on election night, if we see Republicans actually winning Indiana's first congressional district, that's an early indication that Democrats are in for a lot of pain, potentially. Um, then if we go down, um, then, you know, we also should get results pretty early in Virginia. So Virginia's second congressional district, for example, um, I think I spoke on an earlier podcast about Elaine Luria. She's a House Democrat who first won in 2018. She represents Virginia Beach sort of area, um, and she is in for the, the fight of her life. So if you see uh, Elaine Luria surviving uh, in Virginia's second congressional district, that's an early sign, perhaps, that Democrats are you know going to overperform sort of what expectations might be, because I think, um, you know, a, there's a lot of skepticism that Elaine Luria is going to be able to survive. Um, if we then sort of step back, you know, you can sort of think about it as well just from an overall Senate map perspective. Um, so, you know, what are particular Senate races that would indicate either a really good night for Republicans or a really bad night for, for Republicans? Uh, you know, we've talked 
ad nauseum on this podcast about what I think of as the four key battleground states. I'm going to say it again because I really think this is the most important thing to bear in mind is that the four key races that are going to determine Senate control are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and, and Nevada. I said it correctly. Nevada. 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 Yes. I said it correctly. Well done. Uh, thank you. And uh, those four, you know, if Republicans win all four of those races, Republicans would end with probably most likely 53 seats in the Senate. That would be an amazing night for them if they hold that seat in Pennsylvania and all three of those Democratic incumbents go down in Arizona, Nevada, and uh, and Georgia. Um, and then if you imagine, okay, well, what does a huge mammoth Republican wave look like? Well, then we start talking about states like New Hampshire. So in New Hampshire, for a lot of this cycle, Maggie Hassan, who's the incumbent Democratic senator running for re-election against Republican challenger Don Bolduck, has looked like she was in a pretty solid position to survive. But over the past couple weeks, especially, we've really started to see movement of things tightening in that race. And, uh, you know, right now, I think we uh, have Hassan as about a two out of three favorite to survive in her re-election bid. But Republicans increasingly look like they have a, a real chance to, to unseat Maggie Hassan. So if you're wondering what a red wave looks like in the Senate, I would say a red wave looks like Maggie Hassan losing to Don Bolduck in New Hampshire. And if that does happen, then that probably means Republicans are ending this, this election cycle with 54 seats overall in the Senate. I just want to make a note for our listeners. Don Bolduck, by the way, is one of the election deniers that Democrats helped boost in the primary. Uh, so if there is a Republican way, a big Republican wave, in fact, and he does get in, there you go. Yeah, that one of the interesting things about that in particular is in some sense, you can look at a candidate like Don Bulldog, who has some affiliation with uh, election denying as almost a Republican candidate uniquely ill-suited to a New Hampshire electorate, that New Hampshire is actually one of these states that has a really high level of educational attainment relative to the nation overall and has trended toward Democrats sort of over the over the Trump era. And Don Bolduck is sort of, I, I think it's reasonable to describe him as a very MAGA-heavy candidate who is not particularly well-tailored to a New Hampshire electorate. And so if he is able to unseat Maggie Hassan, that is a strong sign for Republicans. Um, and then if you want to go one step further to be like, okay, what does a mega red wave look like? Then you're talking about like? yeah, a bloodbath yeah. probably looks like uh, Democrats losing in a state like Colorado. So Michael Bennett is running for, I want to say, his third term uh, in the Senate in Colorado. He's running against a Republican named uh, Joe O'Day, who has tried to position himself as a moderate Republican. I think he actually tried to characterize himself as, you know, he would be the Joe Manchin of the Republican caucus if he if he got to the Senate. Um, but a real bloodbath looks like Michael Bennett losing in, in Colorado. That a world in which Michael Bennett loses in Colorado is a world in which Republicans probably end with 55 seats and are in a really strong position to win a filibuster-proof majority after 2024. <sighs> Wow. All right, let's flip that upside down now. Good night for Democrats and why? Uh, so a good night for Democrats looks like, well, first off, all those bloodbath scenarios not happening. A good right. night for Democrats right. looks like Maggie Hassan is winning in uh, New Hampshire. Michael Bennett is winning in Colorado. And then I would say, if you look at Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, you know, we probably won't know the result in Pennsylvania on election night, but John Fetterman looks like he's in at least a, a reasonable, reasonably good shape to be able to, to win. Um, Georgia is at the very least heading to a runoff if uh, Raphael Warnock isn't winning outright. Um, Mark Kelly looks like he is in a good position to win in, in Arizona. Um, and I would say the one that at this point is probably the toughest for Democrats to hold on to is, is Nevada, actually. But Catherine Cortez Masto increasingly looks like she is in a, a lot of trouble. Uh, 
Right now, I think we give Adam Laxalt, who's the Republican challenger, something like a 55% chance of winning that Senate race and unseating her in, in Nevada. So I would say a really good night for Democrats actually looks like uh, um, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is in a position to actually survive her, her reelection bid in the Senate. Whew, man. Okay. Uh, all right. So walk us through the evening. And by the way, we should note on the Georgia runoff, um, if it does in fact go to a, to a runoff, um, we should just note just how significant that is because runoffs are obviously uh, low turnout elections, more so in an off year in a midterm year, right? And that tends to favor the low turnout. Obviously, tends to favor uh, Republicans. Yeah, I mean like so Georgia. Yeah, I mean something I would say in particular around Georgia to bear in mind is the only reason it might go to a runoff is because there are three candidates. Of course, there's a Republican, a Democrat, and a Libertarian. And so you could imagine with a Libertarian on the ballot, most people voting for a Libertarian are people who, if they were forced to vote for a Democrat or Republican, probably would vote for a Republican. And so you could imagine that if we were in a runoff scenario, most people who voted for the Libertarian will likely end up voting for Herschel Walker. And so, you know, this is something to bear in mind in terms of how votes are likely to shift around if we go from a general election to a runoff scenario, that it's a libertarian you are kicking off the ballot, not a Green Party person or something. I do have one question on the runoff situation, though. If we go that direction, I hopefully we'll talk to you again then. Uh, if we go uh, toward a runoff in Georgia because neither party's got, neither, you know, neither major candidate's got 50% uh, plus one, I believe is the rule in Georgia. With the demographic shifts, right, in, in Georgia, as we've talked about before in the Sun Belt with Mike Madrid, more college-educated voters voting for Democrats um, and non-college-educated voters voting for Republicans, do we need the change, do we need to change the conventional wisdom about which party benefits from higher turnout in a runoff yeah, in so a place I, like Georgia? Yeah, so I actually already said I wanted to push back a bit because I think, you know, yeah. if you go back to Obama, George W. Bush era conventional wisdom around this, you know, what you just said definitely was what was universally thought. And back then I think was probably true, which is that lower lower turnout tends to favor Republicans because Republicans tend to be older, more highly educated. And those are the people who, you know, those are the hardcore people who are always going to show up to vote oftentimes. The people with higher educational attainment are the last people who are going to stop voting. Um, but now we're in a world where there's a high level of educational polarization that Republicans tend to have a lower level of educational attainment overall um, compared to you know, the general population. And so if you go to a lower turnout runoff scenario, you could imagine a lot of the voters who are going to fall off are maybe going to be some of those uh, you know, uh, voters who have a lower propensity to vote uh, and you know, might have a lower educational attainment. So I think right now uh, that conventional wisdom isn't necessarily as clear anymore, that I think in a runoff in a state like Georgia, the idea of a low turnout election being bad for Democrats, I don't think that necessarily holds anymore. And not to mention, but if that happens and you know, it's, it's neither a gigantic red wave nor a very strong Democratic defense, uh, all eyes will be, and it's, you know, if Georgia ends up being, you know, the battle for the control of the Senate, all eyes will be on Georgia. And you can imagine the, 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 the tsunami of money that's going to, you know, overtake the state, uh, in terms of advertising and just be absolutely insane. Every, uh, every watch. commercial on television will be, every single, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So walk us through the evening. Um, what we, what, what you think we will know by the end of the night, by the time, you know, normal people go to bed. Uh, and then what are we probably going to have to wait until Wednesday to learn uh, or possibly even longer? Like how long do you expect Pennsylvania to take? Um, so I think Pennsylvania, I think it's fair to say Pennsylvania, we all expect to be razor, razor thin. 
And in 2020, Pennsylvania took a while to count its votes. I vividly remember election night 2020 being up in the middle of the night watching live stream footage of Philadelphia vote workers counting votes in the middle of the night. So I think there's a strong chance if the race is as close in Pennsylvania as we think, we're not going to know that result on election night. Now, that said, there are some states where we are quite likely to know on election night the outcome. And that's at least going to give us a sense for how high or how low is the red wave going. So to give one example, I think Florida is a state that, uh, you know, has counts its votes relatively quickly. I think we'll know the results for the Florida gubernatorial and Senate races on election night. And so there, you know, I think we all expect Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis to win their re-election bids pretty easily. But there's a question of margin there, right? That if you see, for example, Marco Rubio and... Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis actually like winning Miami-Dade County, for example, that's going to be an early indicator that Republicans overall are facing like a really, really strong environment for them that might extrapolate elsewhere in the country. Um, another example of that is North Carolina. I think North Carolina, uh, we, probably, we will likely know the result on election night. And I think, you know, we think um, Val or Sherry, I'm sorry, Sherry Beasley is relative, is like pretty unlikely to win, that Ted Budd is pretty likely to win that open Senate race in North Carolina. But again, there's a question of margin. If Sherry Beasley looks like she's doing unexpectedly well, that probably portends things for what the national environment looks like elsewhere in the country. Kyle Williams, anything else you want to uh, leave people with before I uh, turn you loose back to the back to the bunker? I think I would say, you know, again, some how just to, to note some house races that are really interesting to me that I'm going to be looking at a lot that are guiding uh, my sense of, you know, what uh, of bellwether, where things are going to go. You know, Rhode Island, too, is a fascinating election. I mentioned before that this is a, a rate. This is a house district in Rhode Island that historically for a long time has been sort of safe D, but looks like given the national environment and the candidate Republicans have there, you know, if uh, Republicans are actually able to win Rhode Island, too, with a uh, challenger, Alan Fung, uh, you know, that probably pretends a significant red wave nationally. Um, Iowa's third congressional district around Des Moines, if Cindy Axney is holding on around that Des Moines-based district, that probably says something about Democrats standing nationwide. If Cindy Axney is getting crushed, then that probably means we're facing a significant red wave. Um, another one I think I mentioned before, North Carolina 13. Um, these are sort of the South Raleigh suburbs. This is a district that I think Republicans are likely to win in this, uh, you know, in this specific year. But North Carolina 13 is the kind of district that when Republic or when Democrats take back the House eventually in some future election cycle, North Carolina 13 is the kind of seat they will need to win to accomplish that. So however far Democrats are from winning North a seat like North Carolina 13, that is roughly speaking a heuristic quantification of, you know, how far off were they from, you know, keeping control of the house. That's super useful. I have one last question. Is there any specific race, you know, really at any level, uh, that may end up being, uh, sort of providing some indication as to whether or not the hypothesis that the Dobbs decision was actually going to increase turnout, um, and help Democrats, whether that actually comes true. Is there a single race or one or two races where we should look to for that, um, for that indication? Sure. So actually, here's a fascinating answer to that question. Here's a race that doesn't, that gets very little attention, but that I think is really interesting. So Kansas, of all states, actually has an incumbent Democratic governor who is running for re-election. And Kansas, interestingly, also had a ballot initiative around abortion um, that failed, uh, you know, pretty by a pretty substantial margin, I think, three or four months ago. And so then looking at that Kansas gubernatorial election to see if the Democrat, uh, Laura Kelly, is able to hold on to the governor's mansion as a Democrat in Kansas, that's sort of going to be a strong in comparing how she performs relative 
relative to that ballot initiative, that's going to say something interesting about, you know, what do voters look like who maybe are, uh, you know, pro-choice but aren't comfortable supporting a Democrat. That In Kansas specifically, we're going to have a really, um, a really uh, in detail, uh, unusually detailed uh, picture of, you know, what does support for pro-life versus pro-choice look like relative to support for Republicans versus Democrats. So looking to see, like, how far does Laura Kelly fall short or does Laura Kelly actually survive for re-election bid for Kansas governor? That's a good flag. And something I've mentioned before is it, it it will say something about partisanship, but I think it also will say something about the difference between a ballot initiative that is designed to restrict abortion as sort of a question put directly to the voter versus a candidate for federal office who may or may not end up voting on legislation that eventually impacts that same right. You see what I mean? Like they're two completely different questions. And, uh, and I, and I don't think in a voter's mind, they're the same thing. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that's really important flag. We should be watching Kansas. What happens there? Yeah, that, I mean, if Laura Kelly actually does survive, she definitely will not win by as much as the uh, pro-life ballot initiative failed. She definitely will underperform that. But it's a question of, you know, is voter energy around that issue, at least in part enough to get her over the finish line in a super tough state like Kansas for a Democrat? All right, Kyle. Uh, man, I hope you've got, uh, a constant supply of coffee over there or, <laughs> oh, wh- I do. or whatever your, whatever your caffeinated beverage, uh, preference is. The carrying machine <laughs> is fired up. <laughs> All right. We will talk to you on the flip side, man. Cool. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple podcast app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.